Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Richard, we're going to do our best in the coming weeks to discuss the impact of coronavirus in ways that hopefully don't just repeat what everyone else is saying. Yeah, that's quite a tall order, Jim. Yeah. So in that spirit, we're going to look at how this might change our relationships with those we love, especially when we're cooped up with them in our in our homes and apartments in the coming weeks. And then at the end of this show, we're going to circle back and make some predictions about some of the changes we think might reverberate through our broader culture and business and political world. But first, let's get to our interview, Confinement at Home, Social Distancing in Public, with Susan Page. People are being encouraged to work at home, and there may be couples who are used to spending their day apart, and now they'll be stuck with each other in some small apartment or at home together. So they are going to have to learn skills of tolerance and acceptance and adapting to each other. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? In this strange and troubling time that we've now entered, all of us are conducting a mass social experiment. How will lifestyle changes brought about by coronavirus alter us and our society when this whole thing is over? Businesses are hurting, people are laid off. A lot of people, if they're lucky, are able to work from home. So what impact will all of this have, bad but also possibly good, on our relationships with those who are closest to us in our lives? Susan Page is a relationship and couples expert. Her latest book is called Why Talking is Not Enough. I caught up with her in Mexico last week, just as the coronavirus was taking hold and I was finishing a, a, a vacation. This may have been the last face-to-face -face interview that I do for quite a while, Jim. And you had to do it on your own, Richard, once again. Let's see what you came up with. We are here in San Miguel de Allende, and I'm speaking with Susan Page. Uh, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're doing this interview at a, at a time, a strange time for our public lives with the increase of coronavirus. And one of the responses to that, in fact, people are being advised to, to self-isolate, to be on their own, to avoid other people in crowds where possible and to be very careful, which is probably great for containing or reducing the spread of the coronavirus. But 
may have some worrying implications for our society and how we behave together. What do you think? You're right. I think uh, I think we're lucky that we're in an age when we can email each other, FaceTime, Facebook, all of that, because we'll keep in touch with each other using those devices. But parties and gatherings and dinners will probably be at a low point. And in San Miguel de Allende, we do a lot of that. And those will stop. You talk in your book about loving actions. Do you think there are loving actions we can take to mitigate the time that we're now in? In order to use the loving actions that I'm talking about, you have to be together. So I'm talking mostly about couples. And so, of course, couples will stay together in isolation with each other in their home. And yes, they can use loving actions like one of the most powerful ones is making sure that you don't say anything negative, critical, or demanding to your partner as an experiment for a full week. For some couples, a full day is a challenge. But you start paying attention to how often you make negative, critical, or demanding statements to your partner. Partners can practice those kinds of loving actions. Those of us who are married, those of us who have partners we're going to be spending a lot of time alone with our mates, much more time than we normally do. So what are some tips for for that increased amount of time? You know, that is an interesting point because people are being encouraged to work at home. And there may be couples who are used to spending their day apart, and now they'll be stuck with each other in some small apartment or at home together. So they are going to have to learn skills of tolerance and acceptance and adapting to each other. I mean, another one that comes to mind is to act as if. So let's say something with your partner annoys you. There's no law in the universe that says you have to act angry. You can feel angry inside or feel annoyed, but behave gently with your partner. You don't, you, you came home late again. You don't have to do that. You can even though it may be a knee-jerk reaction, you can smile and say what kept you so long and act as if you are not angry when you're really angry. So some of these little skills might be very useful for couples who are spending a lot more time together unexpectedly. That's difficult. I mean, it sounds simple to be positive. On the one hand, the first action, loving action. The other that you mentioned is to try not to speak first, maybe, maybe maybe consider what you're saying before you lash out. But that involves breaking patterns of behavior for many of us, including me. Oh, definitely. These are not just trivial suggestions at all. One of the beauties of this sort of method is that you don't have to get your partner to agree to do it. <laughs> you can just do it yourself. You can even keep it secret, you know, that I'm going to try this experiment and see what the results are. But it's it's not a simple thing. It's something you would have to dedicate yourself to as an experiment, as an idea for improving your relationship, or as I say, for using it as a strategy when you're spending more time together. It's a very deliberate experiment. All of the things I teach, I always say, treat it as an experiment. Then in an experiment, you don't have a an outcome that you're expecting. You're doing it to find out what happens and then look at the results and see what you learned from it. Are there one or two other steps 
that you would suggest that people might try or consider? What you can do, for example, is write down the things that annoy you about your partner, uh, habits that your partner has or ways that your partner behaves. And then look at each one of those and ask yourself, where did that come from in my partner? Why is my partner acting that way? And you might want to look at your partner's childhood um, or work environment or stresses in the person's life right now. You can probably, if you think about it, look at a lot of reasons why your partner might be behaving that way, especially if it's something you've been sort of working on for 10 years with your partner and it hasn't changed. And what you want to do is see if you can develop within yourself compassion for your partner. So you're not always trying to work on changing that person. I always say problems between partners, you don't fix them. You don't solve a problem. You develop a higher level of consciousness, and then the problem evaporates or or transforms itself because you became a more conscious person. This doesn't just apply to couples. And I'm thinking right now, gosh, it's, it's not only couples who will be spending a lot more time together because of coronavirus. It's also families. It's children. It's, I suppose, another thing is to write down a list of things that really annoy you about your daughter or your son. That may also be helpful. Oh, absolutely true. Yeah, there, there's and, and between friends and it's work you can do by yourself. You don't have to involve the other person. That's the beauty of it. But it works with any kind of relationships. And I I mean, I work with a lot of committees because of the Writers Conference here in, in San Miguel. And it really works with disagreements that people have on a committee. We always work by consensus, which means we have to listen to each other. And consensus means you're willing to go along with the result, even if it wasn't your first choice. So that requires some honest listening and adjusting and compromising a little bit with each other and respecting each other. So that works in any group, definitely in a family, definitely in a couple. So right now, we're in this weird time of self-isolation for many people, but it sounds like this could be an opportunity for people to improve their relationships with the people they love. Well, that's an interesting point. Maybe we will have more time on our hands. So maybe a couple who've been putting off working on their relationship, this will provide them with an opportunity to give it a little bit of time, read a good book about how you might improve your relationship and start putting some of those things into practice. It's a good point. Yeah, you know, the true implication of any unusual social event only becomes apparent a year or two later on a mass scale. And I'm I'm thinking back to the the famous New York blackout. I think it was in the 60s. And nine months later, there was a vast increase in the number of babies born in local hospitals. Maybe stuff like that will happen because of this. Isn't that funny? Yes. We, We may not know the results for a long time, but it obviously will present people with an opportunity. People who are used to being very social, will feel some loneliness at being isolated. Of course, if you're a couple already, you have the companionship of your partner, but many, many people live alone and are single, and they may feel much more isolated. And so it may be an opportunity for them to do some introspection and or to develop a new hobby or 
read more or um, get get around to things they've been putting off, that sort of thing. That's Susan Page talking about relationships. And I learned from you, Richard, that she's lived in central Mexico for more than 15 years now. She works as an art collector and dealer in addition to her work in psychology. And as an author, she's deeply enmeshed in the culture of the region. So you all diverted a little bit from the coronavirus conversation, talked a bit about what she's learned about Mexican culture and its community. And I thought it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. That's coming up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we go back to Susan Page, time for another recommendation. So where does your mind go to when you have more time, which many of us do right now? My recommendation is to pull away from the news and even from entertainment and read a novel. Wait, a novel isn't entertainment? <laughs> well, I think it's more than entertainment. Maybe that's the point I'm making. Right now, I'm reading Rules of Civility by uh, the author Amor Towles. He's also written Gentleman in Moscow, read by many people, another wonderful book about manners and customs under stress during a time of revolution. Both books are, are really great and I think a good way of slowing down. We'll have a link to uh, Rules of Civility on our website. Now, back to the conversation you had with Susan Page in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. She talks next about culture and community and what she's learned during her years of travel as a collector and seller of indigenous art. I want to ask you about Mexico. Here we are in San Miguel de Allende. And I've really noticed that the way people live here is markedly different than in the United States. For instance, in this town, um, there are a whole number of public squares and plazas. There are countless numbers of benches. And especially at the weekends, you see huge numbers of people out sitting on the benches, talking to each other. There seems to be a lot more communal public life here than in many American cities and towns. There is no question about that. It's a very different way of life. Many Mexican families and homes do not have a living room. They, they live in small homes, and they just have bedrooms and a kitchen. 
So these public squares become their living room and they go there to hang out, to meet other people, to make out. I mean, you you see a lot of public displays of affection around Mexico because that's the only place they have to do it. It's very sweet. And the other thing that's extraordinarily different about Mexican culture is they are very devoted to family. And they're not as mobile a culture at all. Even middle-class families depend a lot on their relationships with each other. They have family gatherings. They all they all show up for the quinceanera parties, the weddings, the birthdays. They're big events. And all the family comes and shows up. So they can depend on each other for child care, for care of the elderly. And they're not as isolated at all. You mentioned quinceanero events. What's that? When a young woman turns 15, they put on a party that is almost like a wedding. Uh, There are a lot of traditions associated with it. The 15-year-old, it's like a coming out party for her. This is a family event. Some friends, of course, will be invited. And, you know, I think we have far too few rituals in our American culture. We've given up on that. I mean, the rituals in Mexico are just wonderful. And a lot of them very colorful, very fun, very musical. I was lucky enough to witness one last Friday, which celebrated and was led by indigenous people. So there's that as well. Oh, yes. The indigenous cultures are very strong here. There are 62 languages still spoken in Mexico, Huichol, Zapotec, Mayan, etc. The 62 languages, and those cultures have remained intact. They've kept their spiritual traditions and their festivals and rituals. In your work as a curator and a collector of art, you've traveled extensively in Mexico to many places that that most Mexicans and very few Americans have traveled to. What are a couple of lessons that Mexicans could teach Americans? Let's see. One would be the, the relationships with family and to watch the affection among these family members and the loyalty. That's something maybe we could learn from the indigenous cultures. Um. And the importance and beauty of ritual is something else that we've lost that they they very much have. But of course, and the other thing is, they still have a tight relationship with nature and with the earth. A lot of these indigenous cultures in rural communities still depend on agriculture a lot. I mean, I'm thinking of a village where they grow gourds. They create their own lacquer and decorate these gourds with lacquer. This tradition goes back 5,000 years in that community and in that area. They know how to grow the gourds. They know which kinds of seeds grow, which shapes of gourds. And they the ritual of creating a work of art is seasons long because they have to grow the gourds, then they have to dry them, then they do these beautiful cuts on them, clean them out, uh, burnish them, create the lacquer itself, and uh, and then create these gorgeous, beautiful works of art. So there's also a celebration of art and design and indigenous culture here, which is much more visible yes. than it is in the United States or, or in European nations. 
there's an enormous variety of folk art, and it's still very lively and very active and pulls communities together. It's extremely regional. You won't find a woodworker in a clay village. And in that village where they make clay, they make clay in their tradition. And it's the only place in the world where that is produced. So it's very important to keep these traditional arts alive and for us to support that so that the families can make a living from selling their art and displaying it. Many people say, well, isn't this going to die out? They used to say that in the 30s. Folk art's dying out in Mexico. It's still very much alive. What happens now is that some of the younger people will go off and become engineers or doctors or lawyers, but they come back on weekends and in evenings and work with the family in the traditional art because they grew up with it and they're very skilled at it and they love it. That's author and art collector Susan Page coming next. You and I, Richard, will have a few profound and forward-looking thoughts about coronavirus. I can't wait. Before we get into the broader implications, at the top of the show, I promised we would expand beyond individual relationships to talk about its impact on society and business and other things. But I also wanted to add to something that Susan said. She was very focused on your intimate relationships with your spouse. But a lot of people are also living in households with other people, roommates and whatnot. And a lot of people are living alone. So my middle son is living up in Massachusetts in a tiny house off the grid, out in the countryside. So I asked him if he had any tips for how to make the most of that time and not feel terribly isolated in this this time of deliberate isolation. He had a couple of tips I thought were really good. One was schedule your day. Don't just get up go to Twitter or Facebook and, you know, make your day an endless scroll of news. So he makes a plan for the day. But specifically, he only allots a a very discreet block of time to check the news. The rest of the time, he does not check the news. It's not going to help. And I think that's a really healthy suggestion. Yeah, I think that one thing I'm learning right now as we go along is the virtue of being calm, Um, being kind, reaching out to friends, and also taking one day at a time. There's no question that we will make mistakes. Uh, Our leaders will make mistakes um, as this goes through. But I think we, you know, we need to be forgiving of ourselves and just do the best we can. (laughs) Um, Because uh, to tense up and to get ourselves worked up into a state where we don't get enough sleep or we don't eat correctly actually makes us more vulnerable to getting this virus. Yes. And you said something really important there, Richard, being forgiving, not just people in our immediate circles, that's something Susan talked about, but even among our leaders, let's not use this as a time to just score points about the people that we don't like, that we don't normally agree with. You know, you know, I'm not a big fan of New York's governor, Governor Cuomo, but you and I were both talking earlier today. He's done a really good job on this. He deserves credit. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious that the virus will have a lasting impact on our society and, and how we live. But it may take a good deal of time for us to understand 
how it will change us. I mean, right now, the winners, if you can call them that, are, are people who are adept with technology and are able to work from home, uh, younger people in many cases who can make a living online. We may see the death of many more brick and mortar stores as a result of this, but perhaps, and I, I'm hopeful, maybe a Pollyanna, has, <laughs> but but perhaps when this is all over, we will value our communal spaces more. Richard, you are a bit of a Pollyanna, but that's a wonderful thing to wish for. <laughs> Good. Um, so, Jim, you've spent years thinking about how we react to disasters. So I thought it would be valuable to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, I'm interested in this topic uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think often big disasters, they expose rot that already exists in systems, and they also expose opportunities for improving systems. You certainly saw that after Titanic, when all of a sudden there were a whole host of really smart innovations in, in ocean travel that that should have been obvious before the disaster, but they weren't. So here are a few things that I think are going to happen. So number one, I think we're going to rethink our schools. We're going to learn that putting lots of people together in one school building is not as important as we used to think. And it's hard to think of too many alternatives to getting students together. But look at what's going on in our colleges and universities. So much wasted money, so little learning actually happening. And I think two months for all these students away from school, maybe working online, it's going to cause a big, big rethink in the system. Jim, do you think there'll be a, a revolution or a, a speeding up of online learning? There's no question there's going to be a big acceleration of long line learning. I don't think it'll be extreme enough to call a revolution. Um, and there are a lot of incumbent forces that benefit from the inefficiencies of the current system. But I think this is going to expose the cracks in the current system. Yeah, I agree with you about that. There's another thing that, that struck me is that our global supply chains and our whole way of dealing with how we make things, which became kind of just in time in the 1990s and, and beyond, that may well change as a result of this. I mean, maybe we put too many eggs in the basket of China when it comes to supplying us with goods. Yeah, so there's two related problems here. One is this mania for this management approach called just-in-time, that you never want to have more inventory on site than you absolutely need. Um, one of my kids once visited the Porsche factory in Germany, and they were incredibly proud of the fact that the tires that go on the Porsche don't get delivered until just an hour before that particular car rolls off the assembly line. And that means that they're not wasting money on a warehouse full of tires. Now that's all looking pretty silly. You know, so we're going we're gonna to have more crowded warehouses as yes, a result of Yes, and we need them. You need slack in the system to make it safe, a system that is so lean and so just in time that there you can't accommodate a little more demand, like the whole toilet paper situation. If you don't have the capacity to deal with the fact that all of a sudden for a week people are buying 50% more toilet paper than normal, the toilet paper is going to sell out. 
Fortunately, we have a system that can respond to that pretty quickly and start getting toilet paper back on the shelves. That's a consumer overreaction. But if you go too far into the just-in-time thing, what if it was so just-in-time they haven't even cut down the trees yet to make the paper? You know, um, So I think there's going to be a rethinking of that. And there's also going to be a rethinking of the supply chain, isn't there, where we decide – to get more of our goods from either local sources or from a variety of sources rather than from just one country or place. Absolutely. Hand in hand with the whole just-in-time ethos was this idea that it's really bad management to have three or four suppliers for a certain component or product in your business. If you could get it down to two or even one, that was a sign of really, really effective management. But in a crisis, a single point of failure in engineering, they talk a lot about, you know, if there's one bolt that holds on the airplane engine, that's a single point of failure. If it breaks, the plane goes down. You want to avoid those. So we've allowed our supply systems globally to get so narrowed down that we have these single points of failure, and most of them are in China. Now, I do not buy into this anti-global idea of some people in the Trump administration. So this began really not with the coronavirus, but with the the threat of trade wars and and increased tariffs that made uh, many businesses realize that, hey, perhaps we shouldn't have everything coming from China. And it may also now have an even more profound impact on global supply chains. Absolutely. And I don't think we can bring everything back just to be inside the U.S., but it would be really nice if we diversified supply lines to have some things be domestic. A more diverse supply chain is a more robust supply chain. And that's a robust ending to our conversation on how do we fix it? Coming to you in social isolation. I'm Jim Meggs. And miles away, much more than six feet away, I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and we're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio, or podcasts, for companies and nonprofits. If you want to make a podcast or make your podcast better than it now is, then reach out to us at DaviesContent.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.